Well, without further ado, we're going to continue our Tales of Old series. We look at Old Testament narratives and make contemporary application for us. But before we, before we get into it, let's commit our time to Jesus in prayer. Father, we're so thankful we can come together as your people and hear you speak through your word. Father, I pray as your people that you would speak to us, that the Spirit of God would energize the word of God, that the Spirit would bring encouragement, direction, comfort, even challenge as well. Father, I pray as your people that we would come under the authority of the word of God and allow God to speak to us through his inspired, infallible word. We love you so much, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The church, about three years ago, about three years ago, I was actually working retail at Barker's and Newmarket. I know, great store. Yeah. And I remember one particular shift. I got a call from our regional manager. And she's calling me and my co-worker. And she says, Jake, I'm just calling you to let you know, giving you a heads up, that the CEO of Barker's is going to make an impromptu visit to the store. Please make sure the store is ready for his arrival. Okay, make sure that the store is clean and tidy, that everything is symmetrical, that the clothes are folded, that just looks good for his arrival. Because church, because Jake, let me tell you something. I know you think I'm grumpy, but my grumpiness is only a glimpse of what is to come if he comes and finds a store in a mess. So me and my coworker are sitting here thinking, oh, sure, don't worry, we can do that. So anyway, hours go by and uh, it's a very slow day in the store. There are no customers, there's not much activity. And we are getting a little bit complacent with my coworker and the store is still a mess. And my coworker says to me, he goes, hey, Jake, do you want to try on the new suits in the store? I said, would I? That sounds like a great idea. So instead of cleaning the store, me and my coworker, we leave the front, the front desk and we start to try on the new suits in the store. We are having a fashion show in the store. The music's blaring. My coworker is vlogging the experience. We're having a great time. But lo and behold, guess who turns up in the middle of our fashion show with a messy store with an unmanned front desk? Yeah, the CEO of Barkers. And guess what, church? He was not impressed. If looks could kill, I would have been dead on arrival. He looked at me and said, Jake, can I talk to you? And you, after him, in the office. And you know what, church? My manager was right. Her grumpiness was only a glimpse of what was to come in that office. <laughs> but you know what? I still kept my job, praise the Lord. That was, I still kept my job. That's the moral of the story. No, it's not, but anyway. Now, church, in a very different but real sense, when we read the Old Testament scriptures, we see glimpses, not simply of what is to come, but more specifically, who is to come. The Old Testament is a gallery of dim images that tease the person of Jesus. We would call this typology. Typology are types or symbols or shadows found in the Old Testament that point to the coming of Christ, the Messiah. And what we find is when we look, when we survey the Old Testament, there are numerous examples of types and shadows and symbols that foreshadow the coming of Jesus. For example, Adam is a type of Christ. Adam represents you and I in the garden. And through his one act of disobedience, he catapulted the whole human race into sin. But Christ is the second Adam. He represents you and I on the cross. And through his perfect obedience, we can be made righteous. Noah's ark is a type of Christ. Just like how God spared Noah and his family because they were found in the ark from the judgment to come. This foreshadows those who were found in Christ. They will be spared from the judgment to come as well. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. We read about Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. And what's unique about Melchizedek is is that not only he's a priest, but he's also a king. 
In the kingdom of Israel, those roles are kept distinct. A king is never a priest and a priest is not a king. Yet here we have in this mysterious figure of Melchizedek, a figure who's both a king and a priest. But not only that church, we are told in the book of Hebrews that Melchizedek has no family lineage. He has no genealogy, thus we cannot detect his beginning or end. Church, Melchizedek is a forerunner to our eternal king and priest who has no beginning, no end, the Christ. Moses is the type of Christ. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant and Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. In fact, Moses even said in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that there is another coming who is like me who God will raise up amongst his own people, whose very words will carry the authority of God. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth have come through the Christ. And finally, in Exodus chapter 12, the Passover lamb is a type of Christ. Just how we read where God promises the Israelites that the judgment of God will pass them over if they apply the blood of an undefiled lamb to their doorposts. This foreshadows church those who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb will find the judgment of God pass them over as well. And these are but a few examples of typology in the Old Testament scriptures. But even Jesus himself uses typology. In Matthew 16, Jesus says this. He says, this wicked generation asks for a sign, but only the sign of Jonah will be given. Just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, so too shall the Son of Man spend three days in the earth. Church, Jesus viewed Jonah spending three days and three nights in the belly of a whale as foreshadowing his eventual three days in the grave before his resurrection. In fact, Jesus viewed his person as the substance of which the Old Testament was merely a shadow. In John 6, when Jesus was speaking of the Old Testament scriptures, he says, when you search the scriptures, you will find that they testify to me. Now, church, when we talk about reading the Old Testament scriptures with a Christological lens or a Christ-centered lens, we are not saying that every Old Testament passage is about Christ. Nor are we saying that we have the freedom to sort of conjure up our own examples of typology and sort of shoehorn Jesus into every Old Testament passage. That's not what I'm saying. I am not saying that every Old Testament passage is about Jesus. What I am saying is that every Old Testament narrative in some way points to Jesus. Does that make sense? And finally, I want us to focus in on one particular Old Testament passage that is a powerful and somewhat peculiar example of typology that foreshadows the cross of Christ. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to turn them to Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. Now, Pastor Don has asked me specifically to preach on this text, so I'm going to honor my pastor, and we're going to walk through this text. Now, before we dig into the text, let me frame our passage here. The book of Numbers chronicles Israel's 40-year journey in the wilderness. And our passage takes place during their desert wanderings. But they are finally approaching the last year of their journey. And church, it has not been a straightforward journey. It has not been a smooth journey. Their journey has featured countless rebellions, followed by corresponding judgment. And to be frank, the people of Israel from the beginning have been a whiny, complaining bunch. However, they have finally reached almost reached the place they can finally call home, the promised land. God's fulfillment of his covenant with Abraham. The Israelites were fickle. So I should say they were stubborn when it came to experiencing the judgment of God. And they were fickle upon experiencing the restoration of God. They would disobey, suffer the consequences, 
repent. Disobey, suffer the consequences, repent. This was a relentless cycle for the people of Israel. At the beginning of Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites have a skirmish with the Canaanites. Now the Israelites did not initiate this conflict, but they finished it. The Canaanites attack the Israelites and God grants the Israelites victory. And now they find themselves on the border of the territory of Edom. Now the Edomites are distant relatives of the Israelites and their land, their territory is not part of the promised land. But the Edomites do not allow access for the Israelites to go through their territory. So now they have to go around rather than through. And of course, going around is a lot longer than going through. And this infuriates the Israelites. So guess what they do, church? They murmur and complain again. In fact, not only do they murmur and complain, they grow to to resent God. They clamor and exclaim at God by saying, why did you deliver us from Egypt? In fact, their resentfulness towards God grows so great that they even begin to romanticize their old slavery in Egypt. They desperately long to go back to the clutches of slavery and sin, accusing God of robbing them rather than redeeming them. They grow ungrateful towards God. The food that God has been faithfully providing for them, manna from heaven, they now view of absolute contempt. They clamor at God by saying, there is no water, there's no bread. We detest this miserable food. The food that God has been faithfully providing for them, they now view of absolute contempt. They are biting the divine hand that has fed them, mocking God's unfailing kindness. And they even church, they grow faithless and fearful. Rather than trusting God with his direction, rather than believing God with their future, they air another grievance towards God and clamor and complain again by saying, did you bring us all this way to this desert simply to die? We see in our passage family that God's patience has been exhausted and God judges the Israelites for their sin in the form of resentfulness, discontentment, um, disobedience and sin as well. But family, not only does God judge the people of Israel, he also provides a means for them to be restored and healed as well. Let's go to our passage. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route of the Red Sea to go to Edom. But the people grew impatient. They spoke against God and against Moses. They said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. And the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, look, we have sinned. We have spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord would take these snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look upon it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole, that anyone who was bitten by the snake looked upon the bronze snake and they were healed. Now, family, there are three main points I want us to lean in here on the text. Point number one, in the passage, we see a righteous judge. We see a righteous judge. We are told because of Israel's sin that God sends serpents as an act of judgment. And we already know the scope and nature of Israel's sin. Now, an initial impression of this passage, family, an initial impression of this expression of judgment may cause some people to feel uneasy. It may challenge our conception of God even. In fact, many of us will 
maybe if you're tempted to, to skim over this portion of Scripture, because we cannot reconcile who we believe God to be with His expression of judgment. We live in a culture that undoubtedly would find this expression of judgment offensive, because God does not conform to the expectations of justice and fairness of our culture. But church, if I could speak frankly here, family, perhaps the reason that some of us may find this expression of judgment challenging Perhaps the reason we may find this even disturbing is because many of us, even low-key, we actually want to domesticate God. We want a God who's comfortable. We want a God who's cozy. We want a God who only does things that we approve of. We want a God who conforms to our expectations of goodness and fairness and justice. But church, let me remind you, family, the reason we are alive today the reason we've been redeemed and saved and purchased by the blood of the Lamb, the reason God has a hope and a future for all of us is not because God treated you fairly. It's because God chose to treat you graciously. Family, a domesticated, comfy God without the freedom to save and judge whom he pleases never would have delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians. A domesticated, comfy God Never would have taken your mess of a life and turned it into something beautiful. Because guess what, church? It would have been fair for God to say, man, clean up your own mess. Reap what you sow. A domesticated, comfy God never would have redeemed a proud sinner like me. Because it would have been fair for God to say, man, let him die in his pride. A domesticated, comfy God never would have left, never would have left the 99 to pursue you. A domesticated, comfy God never would have chased you down because it would have been fair for God to say, man, let that person go their own way. Let them remain lost in their own way. Family, the reason we are here today, the reason we've been saved and redeemed by Christ is not because we deserved it and God treated us fairly. It's because in spite of us being thoroughly undeserving, God chose to lavish us with his undeserved, unmerited grace. Amen. How can any of us, church, have the audacity to tell God what is fair and just and good when his very character is the foundation by which these very values are measured? God does not simply do good. God is good. And everything God does is an expression of his perfect goodness, including his judgment of sin. We read that many Israelites died because they were bitten by the serpents. They met their death through the act of judgment. And family, this is a sobering reality for all of us, that the Bible teaches the wages of sin is death. And the reality is all of us are in the same waka. We've all sinned. And thus all of us stand justly condemned if God was to treat us fairly to death. But family, we see a response of the people. Here's our second point. Here's how the people respond to the righteous judgment of God. We see the repentance of the people. Family, we read the people actually repent. They're sorry for what they've done. They, they come before God and say, God, we are sorry. We have sinned before you and against Moses. Please take these snakes away. And God, in response to their plea, he instructs Moses. He says, Moses, Take, create a bronze serpent and hang it on a pole. And anybody who fixes their gaze upon the bronze serpent will be saved. 
Now, church, in, in first impression, this may seem like a peculiar provision, but there is intentional meaning here, church. I ask you to lean in here a little bit. Family, from a biblical Israelite perspective, a serpent is a symbol of sin and suffering and deception even. In fact, we're even told that the serpent becomes a symbol of Israelites' trials and testings in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, when Moses is speaking of the terrors of the wilderness, he speaks of the scorpions and the serpents. When Moses is having his confrontation with Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, the serpent becomes an extension or representation of Egyptian power and rule and even their false false gods. And of course we know in Genesis chapter 3, that we are told the serpent was craftier than any other wild animal. The serpent, from an Israeli biblical perspective, is a symbol of sin, justice, deception, cunning, and disobedience. And thus, church, the bronze serpent becomes, reveals, and becomes a representation of the sin of Israel. For God to ask the people of Israel to fix their gaze upon the bronze serpent is for them to fix their gaze upon their own sin, their sin of disobedience, their sin of resentfulness, apostasy, and rejection of God. It is a symbolic expression and representation of the people of Israel choosing to go the way of the serpent with their hunger for power, with their lust for the supposed comforts of Egypt and their animosity towards God. But church, here you have in the text, Here you have what genuine repentance looks like. We know that genuine repentance, real repentance, begins with an acknowledgement of what you've done. Real repentance begins by saying, Lord, I take ownership of what I've done. This is my sin. This is on me. Real repentance is the capacity to say, Lord, this is my fault. And family, for for God to command the people of Israel to fix their gaze upon the bronze serpent, God is teaching the people of Israel Don't look to the left and blame others. Don't look to the right and find fault in other things. And don't look behind and accuse the past. Brother, look forward and acknowledge your own sin. Own what you've done. Take accountability for your own sin. And church, when they had the humility to do that, that is when healing and restoration came. I remember about four years ago, family, I was at my first year at our church, and I was a first year intern, and I loved it here. I still love it here. I adore our church. And I was really excited to be here, and it was always my dream to to work for the church, and also to to lecture at ELC, the Bible College, and I absolutely loved it here. And I knew that Pastor Boyd was the pastor at the time. I knew he had plans for me for the church, and I knew that Pastor Haley had plans for me for ELC, to lecture at ELC. And I was really excited. I thought, man, I I have a future here. This is awesome. And so I thought, man, I get to preach here as well. I get, I'm the only non-staff member who gets to share the platform with the likes of Pastor Kalen, Pastor Haley, Pastor Boyd. I mean, how many of you know church? That's not bad company. There's, there's, there's some great leaders there. And because of that church, I'll be honest, I low-key began to feel a little bit special. A little bit. I was feeling myself a little bit because, man, I get to do all these great things at church. I'm a first-year intern. Wow. Spirit of God is moving. Wow. But to cut a long story short, church, family, I was a terrible student. Terrible student. I didn't take the assignment seriously. I didn't take the assignment seriously at all. I didn't allow the work to shape and mold me into the person God has called me to be. And during that season, family, I was exposed as a person. And I let a lot of people, I disappointed a lot of people. 
and actually began to believe that the, plan, the plans and purposes that God had for me had dwindled away. And family, do you know what my first impulse was? My first impulse reaction was to blame everybody else. <laughs> blame everybody else. I think to myself in my, in my pride, I say, no, I don't need, why do I have to do these assignments? I already have a degree in theology. What do I have to do these assignments for? The church has given me too much to juggle. I can't juggle all these things when the reality was the church only gave me one thing to juggle and I could barely juggle that. I was like, I can't even cope with this thing. I'd say, oh, I'd say, oh ELC, they, gave me, they, they don't support me when the reality was they bent over backwards to support me. And finally, because of my attitude, I grew resentful. I grew resentful. But family, by the grace of God, I finally came to the end of myself and said, Lord, this is nobody else's fault but mine. I have sinned. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me for disrespecting you, the church, and ELC. Forgive me for squandering all these opportunities, Lord. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And family, it was at that moment where restoration and healing took place, where redemption took place. Family, I began to believe God and trust the leading of God during the wilderness season. And guess what, family? Three years later, I'm the small groups pastor of this church. I'm the program lead for, I'm the program lead for ELC, for our level three program. And family, listen, I share that not to boast. Listen, the only thing I can boast about is the cross. I share that to demonstrate the power of owning your own sin before God. Amen. Because family, when we have the humility to do that, to own our own sin before God, that is when healing and redemption and restoration will come. Amen. Third and final point. We see the redemptive power of the cross. The Israelites fixed their gaze upon the bronze serpent, which was a symbolic representation of their own sin. But church, you have to understand, for the Israelites to accept this image of a serpent to now be the image of restoration and healing was drastically countercultural for them. Everything in the nation's history said, well, these serpents are known for sin and suffering and deception. It defied their conventional wisdom that this symbol, this serpent, that is a symbol of defilement and impurity, is now meant to be a symbol of our liberation and freedom. This serpent that is a symbolic representation of Israel's power and oppression and slavery, is now meant to be a symbol of our freedom and healing. One Bible commentator said that for the people of Israel, God could not have chosen a more absurd image than a serpent to be the image of their restoration and healing. From a natural perspective, family, God is drastically contradicting cultural expectations. He is fundamentally defying conventional wisdom. He is doing from what man's perspective may, be seen, may seem absurd and foolish. But in the wisdom of God, this is the means he uses to heal and restore his people. Church, tell me how that is not a picture of the cross. How foolish would it be, church, to tell our culture, a culture that is fixated on clout chasing, prestige and position, to tell them that their redemption is found in the bloody cross of Christ, where an innocent man dies the shameful, dishonorable death of a criminal. How absurd would it be, church, to tell our culture that wants to define and redefine truth for themselves, lost in their own wisdom and ambition and sophistication, that the only truth that will save them is that old, rugged, simple cross. How foolish would our culture see a cross family 
that says there is no room for diversity and plurality. The only message that will save you is Christ and Him crucified. Church, the culture may, seem the, may see the cross as absurd and foolish, but family, let me remind you of the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 when it says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us being saved, it is the power of God. Family, the wisdom of the world is but foolishness to God. God will use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And he will use the weak things of this world to shame the strong. Family, this is a picture of the cross. When Israel looked upon, fixed their gaze upon the bronze serpent, they saw their own sin. And family, as the people of God, when we fix our gaze upon the cross of Christ, we see the sin bearer, the one who bore our sin, the one who bore the weight of our sin, the one who died in our place to pay the penalty that we couldn't pay. The one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, family, finally, here we have, we're going to see what Jesus said about our passage. This is the typology reference in John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so will the Son of Man be lifted up. Family, for the bronze serpent to be lifted up, which was a symbolic representation of Israel's sin, for it to be lifted up means their sin was being judged by God. And family, for the Son of Man to be lifted up on the cross, this means that God, that Christ was being judged in our place to bear the penalty for our sin to die the death that we deserved for our sin as well. Again, the one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Your church, just wrapping up your family, some of you may be able to identify with the plight of the Israelites. Some of you maybe have been sort of wandering the wilderness of your own life without direction, hope, or a future. Because rather than trusting the leading of God, you forged your own path. You went your own way. Perhaps you even think it's too late to venture back now that the promises of God are nothing but a fleeting fantasy. Perhaps, church, you've been bitten by the serpents of your own decisions. And now the venomous poison of unforgiveness, resentfulness, disobedience, going your own way and sin have now infected your very DNA to the point of becoming fatal and even leading to death. Friend, if that's you, I want to encourage you that God is not interested in you beating yourself up. God is not interested in you groveling. He is not interested in you trying to fix your own problems. Because family, the God that we know is by nature a reconciler. The God that we know readily extends forgiveness and restoration. We see God's heart to forgive in the story of the prodigal son, where at the end of the story, it says the prodigal son finally came to his senses. And he says, I want to go back to my father. And he ventures back to his father with the hope of just being a hired servant. But the story ends by saying this, while he was still a long way off, the father was looking which means, family, the father was waiting in eager anticipation for the son's return. Not to condemn him for what he's done, but to lavish him with grace and restore him as a son. 
Friend, if that's you, God is saying, son, daughter, it is time to come home. All he asked family is that just like the Israelites, when they looked upon the bronze serpent and owned their own sin, that we come to God and own ours as well. And this is when healing and restoration will come. I turn from going my own way and turn my gaze and and place my faith in the cross of Christ where I'll find my refuge, my strength, my forgiveness, and my healing. Amen? But friend, I forgot to say, if that does sound like you, with every head down and eyes closed, I want you to raise your hand. If you want to get right with God, if you want to embrace this provision that God has made for you through through his son's death on the cross, I'd love you to raise your hand. Awesome, I see that hand. I see that hand as well. Awesome. Well, church, I'd ask you to pray this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner in need of your forgiveness. Lord, forgive me. I embrace the cross of Christ. I now turn to you and submit to you as my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church.